welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe, a researcher on the project and a public historian. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map the changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environment of Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. On today's podcast, I talked to Ian Miller, lecturer in history at Ulster University, about his research into Belfast and its public health at the turn of the 20th century. So Ian, welcome to the podcast. Now we're going to discuss Belfast as the unhealthiest city in the kingdom at the turn of the 20th century. By 1900, Belfast had been a major city in the United Kingdom and Ireland for around 50 years. Plenty of time had passed to resolve its public health problems. So how healthy and sanitary was Belfast Belfast at the turn of the 20th century? Well, perhaps the main problem wasn't that Belfast was any less or more healthy or unhealthy than it had been, but that other cities across the United Kingdom and in Ireland as well had really made a lot of effort to improve the city. Uh, either to improve sanitation, sewers and things like that. But Belfast was lagging behind and some did firmly believe that Belfast was becoming, to use that quote again, the unhealthiest city uh, in the kingdom. Um, just the period I'll talk about today does cover the period around 1900 and the decades surrounding that. Um, just in the 1890s, there have been outbreaks of influenza in 1891, out of over 6,300 deaths registered in the city that year, 1,784, because of respiratory disease, mainly pulmonary tuberculosis. Henry Whitaker was a Belfast Medical Officer of Health in the early 1890s, and he said in public, I'm afraid that little can be done to prevent this terrible loss of life. He blamed the city for being positioned just above water level, which wasn't perhaps the healthiest position in the city. In the late 19th century, new parts of the city centre had been built on reclaimed land and mud. So, for instance, the area today where, where the corpse are, and that area uh, was all built on reclaimed land. But many believe that this made Belfast's atmosphere constantly moist. Unhealthy mill working conditions mitigated any geographical benefits of fresher open streets and spacious houses. And Whitaker also considered Bally Macaret, which is the area of East Belfast, in which you can see the Highland and Wolf Crane in the background. He considered that to be a lost cause, again, because it rested almost at sea level, which was making flood prevention and effective sewerage difficult. But Whitaker's appointments have been viewed suspiciously. Some believe it's a derism from Whitaker's close connections to Belfast Corporation and not through any notable proficiency in public health or medicine. And indeed, many corporation members at the time were quite nonchalant about concerns such as the city's sanitation. So when the corporation met in 1896, Alderman Graham announced that Belfast Health was perfectly sat to most people living in the city, that it, that was not the case. But nonetheless, Graham has best pride in Belfast, being amongst the healthiest manufacturing cities in the whole United Kingdom and Ireland. Also, Councillor Woodside at the same meeting argued that he did not believe that Belfast was a rotten hotbed that many people would leave them. But I think these statements, if you were to interpret them more critically, perhaps reveal more about the corporation's resistance and reluctance to provide an adequate funding for, at a time, as I mentioned earlier, but most of the major cities were in fact doing so. In fact, Belfast's annual death rate was higher than even than London's, despite Belfast being less polluted and congested. So in 
1896, the British Medical Journal writes a damning report on Belfast's sanitary condition. Why did it write this report? Well, the journal was angry at this stage. Um, it revealed in autumn 1896 that in late September, Dublin's death rates had been 15.5, but Belfast was 24.3. And worse still, this shockingly high figure seems to have been the norm in Belfast for at least decades. And that was a British medical. And of course, it, if the corporation continued not to fund public health initiatives, then Belfast um, comparatively, so Belfast's public health situation cities. The editors asked, how could it be that a new city with all the advantages that great wealth and equitable climate and a comparatively admirable situation can bring should always be the home of typhoid and should always have a death rate for consumption twice as high as any ordinary English or Scottish town. The Dublin-based newspaper, The Freeman's Journal, reported that Belfast citizens had long been living in what they termed a fool's paradise regarding the now, many historians have commented upon the corporation's disinterest in financing the health measures, even though it was spent on various other areas. But many other cities in, across Britain had cleaned or removed their cesspools and privies, and the cost of hygienically removing human waste was considerable, though. In Belfast, traditional open privies located outside the house were still common, but these were quite hard and clean, especially compared to flushing toilets. And so 1893, sewers just discharged to the rivers. A new sewage system was actually introduced, which sent crude sewage two miles upwards and out to sea. But reportedly, the, the wooden chute was leaky and always breaking due to a slow rate of flow, and sewage was usually discharged on land. Poor quality housing was another persistent issue I have mentioned in previous podcasts in some British towns, but nonetheless, the housing problems continued this century. It was common practice to dump refuse on ground intended um, for houses to be built upon. And this was an unhygienic condition, but one which a nationalist MP, Joseph Devlin, thought that the operation was encouraging. So by this time, most cities uh, in the United Kingdom and Ireland had some kind of tracking and trace system for in infectious diseases. Was this the case in Belfast? Well, no. I mean, Belfast was still a very highly pathogenic environment where there was considerable risk of getting infected with a wide variety of diseases. Unlike most of the cities, Belfast did not instigate and what today we would uh, infections. Since the 1870s, towns and cities across Britain and Ireland had notification systems. Upon being notified of an outbreak of smallpox or some other disease, public health officials could legally remove patients to hospitals and shut down unsanitary businesses. So many local governments at the time saw long-term benefits in funding public health. Belfast remained without a system. Disease continued to spread unchecked. One angry correspondent to the Belfast newsletter in 1893 wrote, the milkman who supplies your milk, the butcher who provides you with meat, the tailor who makes your clothes, may all have smallpox raging in their houses and our public health committee and its officers will be as ignorant of this fact as your unfortunate self. All of this could be remedied by a simple vote operation. So it's as late as 1897 that an Infectious Diseases Act comes into force, and their positive effects were immediately visible. When two smallpox cases appeared that year, the infection spread no further. In previous years, it might have affected quite a large or significant proportion of the city's residents. But a new dilemma emerged at this point. Once an infected person had in fact been identified, which was great, Hospitalisation and isolation was the preferred solution. 
But, and also unlike most other major cities, Belfast did not have a dedicated infectious disease. So in what was the Belfast hospital system like? And did Belfast have its own infectious, infectious disease hospital? Well, the two main hospitals at the time were the Royal Victoria, which was then perceived as a Protestant hospital, uh, and also the its Catholic equivalent. As far away as the House of Commons debates raged about the Belfast Corporation, driven by sectarian bitterness, being unwilling to fund the expansion of the Mater, which opened in 1900. Uh, we the excuse that Protestant ratepayers were being duped into funding a Catholic. So we can see here all the tensions between community discussions at the hospitals as well. And of course, there was another place which boasted a range of medical facilities, but that was the workhouse, then situated on Lisbon Road. Workhouse medicine was quite good by the standards of his time, but of course, workhouses and the poor law system. And it took a lot of convincing for a working class person to enter a workhouse hospital, uh, regardless of the quality of these available. Becoming a pauper symbolised social failure, uh, and workhouse conditions could see, and there was a real fear of the pauper grade. Uh, so in practice, hospital provision for the primarily by workhouse. Um, a new infectious disease hospital promised to be rid of all this stigma. And of course, Catholics and Protestants alike fell sick. So the idea of building a hospital which was free as well as possible from um, overtones of either Catholicism or Protestantism was a welcome idea. The new hospital for infectious diseases was intended to benefit both. So in 1891, a committee meets and recommends that the council fund and build a new 50-bed hospital for those infected by all sorts of infectious diseases. They would have separate disinfecting areas and washing departments. But the construction of the hospital was delayed for a number of years. There was ongoing disputes about where it should be located. In 1897, a local government board inquiry suggested that maybe the Purdy's already home to an asylum was most suitable. The asylum board of governors were fine with this, they didn't raise any objections, but they did declare a difficulty in that they had lost the title deeds. But presumably these were found at some point, and the disputes nonetheless continued. At a number of meetings about the corporation's proposals, only a handful of doctors from the Ulster Medical Society raised their hand in favour of having the hospital built at Perdisperm. Instead, they wanted the hospital to be built in the Belfast city centre and were fairly adamant on this, but many people suspected that the doctors simply didn't want the inconvenience of having travel all the way out of town to go to work. So one letter sent to the Belfast newsletter read, it's wonderful, the unanimity doctors display in wishing to have the new infectious disease hospital placed in the midst of a teeming population, just so that they and their friends are the patients. But just because they and friends of the patients may find it convenient to make not a word about isolation to stamp out disease, the piece went on to say doctors and other visitors coming from the hospital will carry with them germs of dams, trains and pulses of all sorts. Another correspondent questioned the logic of housing patients in the city centre when they could simply be benefiting from fresh country air. Sunlight and air were both hard to kill the bacteria of tuberculosis and potentially cure patients. Also, Perdisman, unlike the city centre, didn't have any surrounding dwellings or businesses, meaning that infection was less likely to spread. And one of the key arguments was that the, te the telephone had been developed, so it was very easy to get in touch with the hospital. You didn't necessarily need to be physically near the hospital to go and tell a doctor some information. And that's what many other industrial cities had done. They'd begun to build new hospitals on the outskirts. And there seemed little reason, apart from the doctor's commute, for Belfast not to follow suit. So eventually, it's 1906, when the Perdisburn Hospital opens its doors with 168 beds initially. It did take some time to convince potential patients that the hospital could be curative. 
Many working class families still viewed hospitals suspiciously as grotesque sites of human and animal experimentation and dissection in which the caring atmosphere of being sick at home was replaced with a strict paternalism. As late as 1913, there's still reports from local doctors who, who were tending not to notify the public health authorities of a scandal at this instance, mainly because he sympathised with the patient's concerns. About but nonetheless, attitudes are changing and becoming more favourable in infection managed in a So Ian, sounds like things were generally improving in the sort of mid-1900s, sort of 1905, but there's a meningitis outbreak in 1907. Does this mean that the problems weren't really getting better? Well, I think the meningitis outbreak or spotted fever, as it was often referred to at the time, I think it really made visible the ongoing problems in Belfast. Because in 1907, disaster struck an epidemic of meningitis arrived. Uh, spotted fever was at its most deadly between January and April, and then were the months when infections spread most rapidly. There have been a few outbreaks across the world. In 1904 and 5, spotted fever killed thousands of children in New York. In 1906, it was rife in Glasgow. But in other places, it just tended to, the outbreaks tended to be quite localised or, or comparatively small. So if you see spotted fever really breaking out, it's an indication perhaps that there's some kind of public health issues going on there, which are in need of being resolved. Uh, in Glasgow in 1906, at, at the peak, about 30 people a week had been dying of meningitis in that city. So when spotted fever arrived in Belfast in the opening months in 1906, there was a huge fear. Throughout that year, 548 people died from spotted fever. And that was out of a total of 725 known serious infections. So we can see here that the mortality rate is alarmingly high. The infection rates aren't too high. Um, it's not a... And it's not amongst the most contagious of diseases, but if you did get meningitis of the virus cord or the membranes of your brain, the chances of you survive. The time between the onset of symptoms and death could be very short. On 12th of April, a man named Mr. Spence was suddenly taken ill while walking around Kimberley Street in affluent South Belfast. He died while being transported home. On the same day, newspapers reported the sudden deaths of Nurse McDonnell, who had contracted the disease from a patient she was caring for, and also Constable Egan, described as a fine specimen of robust athletic manhood. So we can see here, this isn't a disease just affecting the poorer classes. Uh, it could, the fears were that it could uh, affect even the healthy people from, from the better off. And just to add to the anxious feeling across the city in spring 1907, the health authorities refused for a while to release daily statistics on the epidemic's progress presumably to alleviate distress and panic, but perhaps in inadvertently causing much of that. Spotted fever could decimate families. In April, the virus arrived at the home of John McKay, a 36-year-old Scottish man employed by Dunville's Distillery as a foreman. He lived in the area of Belfast, now known as the village, or Donegal Road. On 8th of April, John's wife died from meningitis. John slipped into an intense mental depression. He was now left behind to care for five children, the eldest of whom, a 13-year-old girl, then died from meningitis as well. On Saturday the 20th of April, John asked his 11-year-old son to look after the remaining children while he got himself dressed. The boy went to his neighbour, Mrs Turner. She had been nursing and cooking for the children since the wife passed away. Meanwhile, John hanged himself from his bedpost. Two days later, another of his daughters passed away, also from meningitis. 
And Mr. Dunville of the distillery promised to pay all funeral expenses of the few children left behind to Scott Luca. And he described the case as one of the saddest he had ever heard. As I mentioned, unlike other infections, spotted fever was not confined largely to the impoverished. The Daily Mirror, commenting on the situation in Belfast, noted that one of Belfast's victims was an Oxford undergraduate, a clergyman's son, and germs or a virus. More precisely, it might well have directly caused his death, but the author said, it's the product of dirt, it's born in slums, it's the direct result of us allowing a large number of our population to herd together in places where we should be ashamed to keep. The anonymous author continued his warning to the affluent classes by writing, suddenly the comfortable person begins to feel a pain in his head. He turns violently sick. He is put to bed and cries if he is touched. So sensitive has his skin become. In a few hours, he is dead, killed by the slums he was so anxious not to disturb. To pull them down would have cost him maybe an extra farthing, but now he will never have to pay rates anymore. So that was a grim way in which the Daily Mirror chose to communicate messages about the need for improved public. Children died in large numbers. A seemingly healthy child might be seized suddenly with fever, vomiting, excruciating head and neck pains and a sensitivity to both light and touch. One common symptom was known as Koenig's sign and this involved the whole spinal column. This occurred if the whole spinal column was infected. The entire body, now paralyzed, would curve backwards into a half circle and remain in that position usually until death finally arrived and a shrill high-pitched cry was another serious and unusual symptom. Death could occur in hours, or it could be prolonged for weeks, even months. Some victims slipped into a coma and not all of them awoke. Those who survived could face a lifetime of blindness, deafness, mutism, or impaired memories. Spotted fever's cause was viral, but the medical profession did not yet understand the differentiation between bacteria and virus. Extremely difficult to manage and to understand. So there's this period for a few months of the city living in fear. Uh, and of course, maybe the fear of meningitis um, was perhaps worse than the actual incidence rates. There was large placards posted in prominent places outlining the penalties now in place for infringing public health regulations. If you held awake for a victim of spotted fever, you might face a five pound penalty. Parents were fined if they knowingly sent an infected child to school. Mothers demanded that the school shut until the disease had been stamped out. But regardless, many kept their children off school. And it took some months for the government to confirm that it would still pay teachers if their attendance then wasn't maintained. So was the response of the corporation to establish the Belfast Health Commission in 1907? The, the spotted fever epidemic made visible the human cost of refusing to find sanitation. In 1907, the local government board of Ireland instructed a health commission to visit the city to investigate why so many preventable deaths were occurring. It wasn't just spotted fever, it was also osteoporosis uh, and a wide range of infectious diseases. The commission visited Belfast factories, workshops and hospitals. They inspected housing conditions, sanitary arrangements, refuse depots, tipping grounds, markets, water supplies and the recently built abattoir. And they had the help of a group named the Citizens Health Committee, who for a decade or so had been very concerned about the state of Belfast City. There was a 192 page report published the year after, which was highly unfavourable, just as the British medical journals reports had been. A decade earlier, the Commission criticised ongoing issues in recording deaths, the ignorance of local authorities on the causes of infant mortality, poor surveillance of the geographical spread of infectious disease, and a general disinterest in occupational health in the mills. 
The report decried the high deaths of meningitis, tuberculosis, and typhoid. It also accused the corporation of promoting its own members to key public health roles instead of adequately qualified individuals. I think we can safely presume that that's a thinly veiled reference to Henry Whitaker in today's episode. The Commission agreed with the Citizens' Health Committee that Belfast Public Health Administration, in his words, was, was feeble, inefficient, and indifferent to their responsibility. In his aforementioned 1893 statement, Whitaker blamed the poor's ignorance and the wealthy's apathy for Belfast's woeful health condition. Undoubtedly, many working-class families did perhaps have a cavalier or fatalistic approach to infection. 1999 measles killed 146 Belfast children, but many parents, knowing that measles tended not to strike twice, actively encouraged the children to mingle with each other. But I think at this stage, there is no point just blaming the working classes anymore. The positive examples set by other cities have proven the effectiveness of local government funding in stemming disease. However, without an adequately funded public health infrastructure incorporating public education on the causes of infection, Belfast Poor had few options other than continue struggling for survival in a pathogenic earth. And while doing so, they watched the corporation fund and erect Belfast's most majestic civic buildings in the city centre throughout the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century, including the new City Hall opened in 1906, just five months before spotted fever began to devastate. Ian, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.